Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 112th show. Before we start the show, I'd like to introduce Elisa Bloom, founding executive director of the Philadelphia Fashion Incubator, who will give us a minute about the incubator because it relates well to Nova's experience. And then she will introduce our guest and I will start uh, asking Nova questions. And all of you, if you have any questions, just type them into chat and I will make sure I ask them. Well, Alisa, welcome. Thank you, Mark. Hi, Nova, so great to be with everyone this afternoon. Thank you for having me and it's an honor to introduce Nova. And before I do that, I just want to take a minute and share with all of you this afternoon a little bit about the Philadelphia Fashion Incubator at Macy's Center City and the work that we are doing supporting emerging fashion entrepreneurs in the Philadelphia region, helping them build, scale, and grow their companies. We are currently in our 11th year, and it is a one-year residency that's all about the business of fashion. And we choose four to six emerging fashion entrepreneurs um, who are from Philadelphia, and we provide them with space. We have 800 square foot space at Macy Center City at the historical Wanamaker building um, where designers have use of a design studio and a workspace. And we also give them an intense um, education of workshops with top industry leaders. Um, They have an entrepreneur in residence that meets with them monthly to help them with their individual goals and deliverables and uh, mentors and many, many opportunities for them to sell and showcase their collections here and also um, nationally. So um, we're really excited to see what's happening here in the fashion sector of Philadelphia and really being a part of this ecosystem, helping to um, really reinvigorate um, the the fashion community here. And um, I'm really excited now to introduce Nova. Nova Lorraine, you are an incredible visionary creative entrepreneur I know that you are an award-winning fashion designer, author on Unleashing Your Supernova, and founder and publisher of your online platform, Rain Magazine. And in today's talk with Mark, I know you'll be discussing how to identify your creative DNA, um, how entrepreneurs can overcome challenges, and also how to keep inspired as a creative entrepreneur. So I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation with Mark this afternoon. And Mark, thank you for having me. Elisa, awesome. Thank you so much for introducing Nova. And so Nova, you have an amazing, interesting background. So tell us a little bit about your professional background and why you wrote this book. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me and Elisa for that wonderful introduction. Um, I am really excited to be here and share this information with you. 
So my career actually did not start in fashion. I was pursuing my PhD in clinical psychology. I wanted to help people. I knew that from day one and medicine was that most obvious choice. And so following the footsteps of my older brother um, was looking to um, be a doctor. And so it wasn't until after I actually started graduate school that I had a divine download that how I was going to help people was through my love of fashion. And just to set the stage, I was born in Jamaica. My parents immigrated here. I'm one of six. And so I was the last of my siblings to be born here. I mean, to be born in Jamaica. And in a traditional Caribbean household, you can choose one of, this is a joke, but it's a running joke within our, in our community. Um, you could choose one of five, let's see, careers. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, teacher, nurse, I think I covered it. <laughs> so fashion designer was not on the table. And so it was definitely a, a risk that I was taking on many levels. One, I had this very uh, short path in front of me. I knew I wanted to help people. I was on this journey for so long, but inside was this really strong um, desire and urge to help people through my love of fashion. So I went on to study at the Fashion Institute of Technology at FIT after completing my master's in clinical psych at the University of Connecticut. And a few years after graduation, I came back to New York to launch my couture collection, Nova Lorraine. And that first premier collection is what earned me the Best Hot Couture Designer of the Year Award, which really catapulted me into many other opportunities, including being able to showcase at the famous Apollo Theater, being featured in Italian Vogue alongside Alicia Keys, being in Essence Magazine, having my designs on the stage of The View, as well as Oprah, and many other things. And with all of those highs and, and extremely exciting accomplishments came equal lows. And it was five years into my journey and many days of wanting to give up on this. I was a young mom when I launched my company. My daughter was just about eight or nine months old. My son was about 22 months old and, and it was challenging. And being in New York as a new resident, I didn't move to New York until two weeks before I actually launched my first collection. And here I am, young mom, new resident in New York, and I wanted to accomplish the world and launch this high-end fashion collection without a network, without a mentor, without deep pockets. So it was definitely an uphill battle. And, but it was my dream. I wanted to persevere. You know, my message at the time for women was empowering you to feel beautiful from the inside out. And I was on this mission, but rain came to me five years into that. And it was sort of the epiphany, the aha moment of how I was gonna to bring together this desire to help people, which I had all along going into graduate school with my love of fashion. And it was like, oh, wow, I can create a platform that answered so many of the missing holes that I had in, you know, along my journey. And if I can help other creatives and other entrepreneurs not give up on their journey to go after their dreams, no matter what, through this platform, through rain. And then I've really come full circle in accomplishing what I wanted to do. And so rain was born and 15 years later of making it rain, I love saying that, um, rain has expanded into the book that we're talking about now, Unleash Your Supernova, which I saw as an extension of what I was doing with the magazine. I see it as a tool that anyone could have in their toolbox and not only how to launch a business, but how to take an idea to execution, how to survive the roller coaster, right? The ups and the downs. And um, believe it or not, the podcast was launched before the book 
was published. And I was fortunate enough, blessed enough to get a book deal during COVID. Again, you know, all these things to inspire anyone that, you know, if you have a dream, if you, if you have something you want to do, just don't give up. You just never know. And so Unleash Your Supernova, the podcast was launched in a few months into that journey. It was nominated for a, an award, best podcast of the year. Um, last year, it was nominated last fall for best best host of the year by the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And um, beyond that, Marine has grown into a podcast network called Pink Kangaroo, and that's Kangaroo with a U. And it's the same thing that I'm doing with the magazine, but in the medium of podcasting. How do you inspire others through storytelling? How do you impact the community? How do you, you know, charge and empower creatives and creative entrepreneurs and do that through sound? and storytelling and audio. And that's what Pink Kangaroo is about. And now I'm in the world of Web3, <laughs> all things crypto and the metaverse, and really enjoying that ride as well. How often does your magazine come out? Rain launched as a quarterly magazine. We were, I would say the first at the time to launch a quote unquote online glossy. It was a flip book that mimicked the experience of a print publication wanting to be eco-friendly, but then it grew into print and events. And now we're on demand. We just launched actually yesterday, the second edition post pandemic. Congratulations. Thank you. So how long did it take you to write this book? Ooh, that's a great question. You know, the idea came to me in the fall of 2017 and I was having a conversation with a friend and I was sharing with him one of my stories to, you know, give him a pep talk that day. He was going, he was having a hard time and he's also in the fashion space. And then he said, Nova, you should put that in a book. I mean, you're always sharing these stories. There's so many people that can be helped by your stories. And, and he wasn't the first person that said that because I do enjoy sharing stories, especially those that can inspire someone. And then when it came to me at that moment that, well, wait a minute, I could help people. I could help a lot of people. And so then that's when I was like, okay, I am going to commit to putting this in a book. But it wasn't until I would say 2019 that I actually finished the manuscript. And I attended a writer's conference in New York and pitched it to several agents, literary agents, and grateful to have signed with an agent shortly after that. And about six months later, I had gotten my first offer to do a book deal and to go into publishing and go into print with the book. So it was a journey. And just like, you know, the reasons why I launched Rain, again, you know, I didn't know where to start. I wanted to write a book. Well, how do you start writing a book? How do you put together an outline? And how do you turn that into 50,000 words? And, you know, just taking that journey as well was, was such a growth moment for me. And to see it come to fruition and see it come full circle where it's now physical, tangible on bookshelves, you know, in, you know, in the format of an ebook where people can get it and truly be inspired by it was so worth it. It was a long journey, but it was absolutely worth it. And I enjoy helping writers now, you know, that's on that journey, if they have something inside them that they want to bring forward, because it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to do to share not only your successes and your failures, but then also personal moments in your life that you may not share every day. I have to tell uh, the audience, I've written six books myself, getting an agent to represent you in your first book, that's quite a coup. That's really, you had something really uh, significant to tell because agents are typically lazy and want uh, you to already be established name before they take you on. 
So clearly you've built a great career and um, a great presence and hence they took you on. And now you've got this fabulous book, which is uh, a must read for anybody who's looking to start a business. What, what did you like and what is challenging about being an entrepreneur, especially for a woman in 2022 and a woman of color on that? Yeah, I, I love that question. Not a lot of people ask that because I feel that, you know, owning your own business and being an entrepreneur has really been glorified. And when I decided to put creative in front of entrepreneur at the time when I launched Rain, most people were looking at me like, well, first of all, what's an entrepreneur? Because most business owners were referred to as small business owners. And then you're putting creative in front of it. What does that even mean? And so the journey of wanting to turn an idea into a business that can sustain itself and then create a livelihood for you is a challenge, especially if you're a creative person, because you're using this inspiration, these ideas, you know, to formulate a product. And at the time I was doing clothing, I was creating fashion designs and then taking these clothes and then identifying the customer, identifying the market, identifying those individuals that are going to share your story, you know, in the media, in the PR and continue to scale up and build a team and manage a team and grow a team, you know, and do that from just an idea. And for me, the idea was, oh, I want to help women. I want to empower them. And I want to do it through the clothes, through fashion, through these things that I love. And then all of a sudden you have this enterprise that you're managing, which is to me like managing a child or children and growing it. And what you're not told in the beginning um, or, you know, in a lot of books, and I love to read, I'm a big nerd. So I got my hands on every single book I could find about, you know, building a business and marketing a business and growing and launching a business. But what they don't tell you is that it's a very lonely journey. What they don't tell you are you're going to have these pitfalls. You're going to have these moments where you're going to ask yourself if this is truly what you want to do. What they don't tell you is really analyzing the reason why you're doing it, because oftentimes that becomes your North Star and is the reason why the true reason why you should be doing it. You know, what they don't tell you is how to analyze and assess your true gifts and talent, talents and bring that together with your experiences and your passions to really push forward and tap into those limitless abilities. And so what you have are these really cookie cutter formulas that don't work for everyone and especially don't overlay perfectly when you're also a creative or bringing a creative idea forward. And so these are the things that were frustrating for me in the very beginning as an entrepreneur and as I scaled. And so I spent a couple of years putting together what I called the perfect business plan to go out and raise millions of dollars to launch my fashion company because I hit all the check boxes of the books that I read. And here I am sitting in front of VPs of banks, VPs at these hedge funds, angel investors. I'm pitching this business plan. I have a proof of concept. I have a sample collection. I have you know individuals that love the collection and have purchased. But what they don't tell you is if the people sitting across the table do not understand your industry, no matter how much they love that product, they're not going to invest into a business model that they don't understand. And then at the time, most fashion companies scaled really large fashion companies were backed by either conglomerates or private funding. And so here I am, I took my entrepreneurship course, I read all the books, I have the product, I have the market, I have the numbers, I have the business plan, but then you hit the wall of funding. And so these are the frustrations that I encountered and what I wanted to address when I launched Rain. How about as a woman of color? Was it more difficult, did you think, getting this off the ground, not as much support or what, what did you face? I think in the space of art, 
uh, you have permission to come as you are, which was beautiful. You know, in the fashion space, being a woman of color, being an artist was not a barrier. What I found so much was I wanted to do couture. So it was expected to do streetwear, it was expected to do t-shirts and denim, but it wasn't expected to do these thousand dollar gowns or jackets or dress coats that I was creating. So that was a challenge because in the history books, you know, those couture designers like Chanel and Dior, and then the newer ones, Armani, Valentino and the like, they didn't look like me. They were not an immigrant from Jamaica. And so that was a challenge, you know, to convince people to spend five, six figures on items that I was, what I was designing and creating. But as an artist and being in the space of fashion, I felt that there was room for that. But being a woman of color in a business that wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a tech startup at the time, that was what was popular, you know, and bringing a fashion company forward before the likes of Project Runway and all these really great outlets that we have for creatives and saying, hey, give me a couple million dollars to launch a fashion company, take a risk. You know, I felt that was a challenge. And if I was a man, maybe I would have gotten more money at the time. Who knows? But I would say the obstacle I felt was being accepted as a couture designer, charging that level of, of currency for the garment that I was making. Did you raise outside capital? I did. Family and friends are great. So <laughs> you left <laughs> out the fool's part, right? Yeah, family, I, and family and friends. Listen, um, if if you show up as it, as you would show up in front of you know a hedge fund, a VC group, or you know the heads of banks, if you show up in that capacity in front of family and friends, they're going to take you seriously. And that's what I did. You know, I showed up professionally. I had a plan. I had samples. I knew my market. I knew how I was going to charge forward, and they believed in me and invested in me when I needed to scale. I then got a, a great um, entrepreneur restaurant tour that I met alongside Johnny Cochran one evening when he was still with us. And he said, you know, show up at my restaurant tomorrow, bring your portfolio. And so I did, I brought my portfolio. He was building a new restaurant, which became one of the, like the A-list restaurants to get into at the time in New York City. And he said, hold on, I'm gonna call someone. He gets on the phone. And he says, I have this incredible designer. I'm going to send her to your office tomorrow. I want you to take care of her. And so he said, I want you to go to this place tomorrow at 10 and they'll take care of you. I had no idea what I was walking into. So the next day I showed up at HSBC Bank and I was sitting in front of the vice president of the bank with my business plan. And I walked out with a loan and that was my first loan. And so you just never know who on your journey you're going to meet. But if you show up prepared, and they believe in you and they trust you. People want to help you along the way. So I went from family and friends to getting my first loan. It was a five-figure loan. And then I wanted to expand into a store. And so I had a showroom. I had a history. I had product. And so then I went into, after uh, many <laughs> shortfalls and getting the VC funding that I was looking for, I said, you know what? I'm going to take this into my hands. And I went into Bank of America and I came out with a six-figure loan and I launched my store. And so I feel it's all about being prepared, holding on to that dream, being intentional and waiting for time to catch up with you. And um, when you were raising this money, what did you learn? Like what, uh, what are the things that you learned that you said every entrepreneur needs to know this when they're raising capital? What, what was it that you learned along the way? So a couple of things. One, I would say, um, 
I'll start with the family and friends because I don't want to underestimate that ability to raise money and not take it for granted. And just because you know people doesn't mean they're going to invest in you. But if you take the time to understand your market, your product, your customer, and you can tell a succinct story and showcase that story visually in a way that's compelling, people will invest in you and you'd be surprised. And so I was asking for increments of one and $5,000. And I was getting five, anywhere from three to five times what I had asked for because of being prepared. The other thing is go to the niche of investor that investors that understand your market that I didn't know. I just thought, okay, well, here's a hedge fund. Here's an angel investor. Here's a VC. They love what I'm doing. But if they don't understand your industry, if they don't understand your business model, it's like anything. It's a bigger risk for them, especially if they're managing a fund for other investors. And so find the niche of investors that understand and or are already investing in the industry that you have. And then credit. <laughs> you know, don't, don't underestimate a good credit score. So if I didn't have the right credit score at the time where I was looking for um, debt financing, you know, from these banks, then that wouldn't have worked out either. So depending on the, you know, the, whoever you're going to, maybe an entity, an organization, family and friends, angel investor, I think if you're hitting those check boxes, then you should be successful. You, uh, and I like this, I, I thought you had a great questions uh, that you asked in the self-discovery process. And that is, what are you known for? Which is very similar to asking you, what is your brand? Can you talk about the importance of that for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs? Yes, thank you for asking that. And it's so interesting, the synchronicity of that question. Um, I just had a meeting this morning where, you know, myself and the individual on the other end of the phone had asked each other that same question. Um, and it has come up several times this week. And when we are assessing what we want to do or how we should do it, a lot of times we don't think back to well, what makes us who we are. What are those extraordinary gifts and talents that we're known for? And we may take a, we may take that for granted. And but when we ask someone we trust that's closest to us, they're able to give us those answers. And so if you're not able to answer that for yourself, if it's not obvious, I highly recommend asking individuals that are close to you. And also ask them anyway, because there may be things. So for example, let's say you are known to be a writer, but you happen to have an extraordinary gift in public speaking. And you never even looked at that because you've been known to be a writer. But I think it starts there because now, guess what? You're known to be a writer. You have a gift in public speaking. So maybe you combine those two things. And now you're on stage sharing information about how to become a great writer. And so it's using those special you know, combinations that really allow you to cut through the noise. So what I was known for was my creativity, my fashion sense, my style, my creative direction, and being able to express that in different mediums. And the medium I chose at the time was fabric. <laughs> I wanted to bring these stories to life through fabric, but I also wanted to help people. And so what also helped me stand out was that I had my background in psychology and I wove that into the story I was telling. So as I would create these garments, I really looked at every layer of what I was touching with those garments and from the inside out, created a story that would impact individuals emotionally, that would make them feel good from the moment they looked at the garment, put it on to when they were wearing it. 
And so being known for coming from a background of psychology and where I felt like a foreigner in fashion class when everyone else came from this really cool artsy fashion background, here I am saying, oh, I'm coming from psychology with no background at all in fashion. That actually became an advantage for me because I was able to bring that training into what I did. I was able to bring the ability to research and analyze and to read charts and stats into what I did to understand people and human behavior into what I created. And so really looking at what you're known for and asking individuals, well, what am I extraordinary at? What do I stand at? What stands out about me to you? And bringing those elements together can really help you explode your gifts and talents. Um, you write about, uh, and I thought this was uh, interesting as well, acknowledging your own brilliance. And that sounds kind of egotistical, but I, I don't think you mean it that way. No, it's not. I think there's pride, but then there's also just honoring who you are. And most of us, and again, this was just a conversation I was having a little bit ago, you know, the majority of individuals see themselves as average or below average, where we all have the ability to shine. We are limitless. And so I feel that just by starting there, and recognizing that, hey, there's something inside me. There's something more than what is what I'm seeing in the mirror. There's something more than what I'm showing up with every day. And I could tap into that. And that is limitless. It doesn't end. It doesn't bottom out. And so just starting with, wait a minute, I am brilliant. And what are those areas that I shine in? You know, and it's different for everyone. And that's the beauty of it is that we don't have to and don't want to compare ourselves to those next to us, right? There's only gonna be one Oprah. There's only gonna be one Gary Vee. There's only gonna be one Priyanka Chopra. And that's the beauty of it, is that they took what makes them unique. They showed up unapologetically and they stepped into their essence. And when you step into the essence of who you are and recognize all of who you are, that's when you shine the brightest. And unfortunately, a lot of times we're only recognizing a small fraction of who we are. So I say, recognize that brilliance, honor that brilliance, embrace the, the powerful being that you are. And when you just stand there and honor that and step into that and say, wait a minute, I may not know all the layers of who I am or all the wonderful things that I'm about to do, but what I do know is that there are wonderful things that I'm about to do. What I do know that I am a powerful person showing up today. And all I have to do is discover those powers and abilities and gifts and talents or find ways to tap into them. I think your parents should have called you supernova. So you, <laughs> because that's how you are. Uh, you're a force of nature and you have such great high energy. I really enjoy, enjoy just listening to you talk. You write about keeping track of your ideas. And I do that. I, I do it on my phone. I have one of those, um, like a document that I keep writing ideas on. How do you do it? And how many ideas did you write down before you acted on one? Ooh, I love writing down ideas. Like even with this book, if I, I think I might've shared some of the titles that um, I came up with before like honing in on Unleash Your Supernova. But the key is when you start writing it down, it generates the next idea and the next idea and the next idea. I remember in design school, they gave us an assignment to create, I think it was a hundred designs. And I remember sitting there saying, how in the world Am I going to come up with a hundred designs? Like, how does anyone even do that? And I think my inspiration was strawberries at the time. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, like, where do I start? So I came up with maybe three or five. But then when I look back at the first one, 
that inspired design number six. And then when I looked at design number three, that inspired design number seven, because I was able to find something in that to give me a new idea. So I feel that if we write it down, it serves as that launch pad for more. It doesn't mean that's the only one. It doesn't mean it's going to even be the last one or the final one. But what it does, it starts like, you know, like sometimes we're so locked up with our creativity, right? And then you write the one thing and then, oh, then the second thing, oh, and then the third thing. And by the time you get to number 10, you're warmed up. You're not on fire. You're warmed up. And so you could stop there and then come back and say, oh, wow. Okay, let me, number five is going to generate a whole bunch of other ideas. So it's so important to not take for granted the ideas that come to us because they come to us for a reason. And it goes back to honoring that brilliance that we have, because if we realize like, whoa, idea number one, there's something in there, let me honor that and just write it down and let that become what it's supposed to become. And so I say, yes, please write the ideas down because a lot of times our thoughts <laughs> are so quick and we forget them. And then like three days later, we're like, oh man, I had a good idea, but I can't remember it now. But because the purpose was for you to hold on to it at that moment and to really not take for granted those moments when you are inspired by those ideas. You could be walking down the street, you could be in the shower. And what we don't realize is when we are still enough, when we're in the present moment, that's when those best ideas come to us. And often we don't even recognize when we are still, we don't recognize when we are present to even know to capture those ideas. So just when it comes, write it down. When it comes, write it down. And what it's going to do is give you more ideas. Uh, you alluded to this in the very beginning, but I, and I thought it was interesting. You know, here you were going to be a psychologist. You were going to get, you were working on your PhD, right, in psychology. And you picked something totally the opposite in fashion. And I'm wondering what made you drop out of psychology and how has the psychology degree helped you with fashion? And I think it would give you a competitive edge in terms of understanding people. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I have to start with, I kid you not, day one through day seven in design school at FIT was <laughs> so humbling. And I had such insecurities because I realized I was one of the few, there was three of us actually in that class, uh, that freshman class that did not come from a background in fashion. And we all actually had professional degrees. One was a master's in arts, one was a master's in business and I had my master's in psychology. And I felt like a fish out of water, I really did. But when I decided to take the chance of pivoting from medicine and science to fashion, uh, it was a leap of faith and it was me honoring, uh, this, this is coming up a lot today, that inner voice that said, go to New York, go to New York, go to New York. And I knew what was waiting for me in New York. I knew it was fashion. I knew that. And I ignored it for months. And how it manifested was in chest pains. I was getting physical chest pains. I, I act and I was very theatric. I was like, oh my gosh, I must be dying. I'm getting chest pains. <laughs> and so I go to the doctor, like the good store I am. I go to the doctor and he was almost comical when he came out with this chart because I was all hooked up to the EKG and everything. And he's like, your heart is fine. 
He said, is there anything you could be stressing about? Because it might be anxiety attacks that you're having. Now, mind you, I'm a student in a clinical psychology program. And so of course the ego comes and I'm like, oh no, I'm not stressed about anything. And I would know if I have anxiety, right? Like that's the ego talking. And so I really was perplexed because I was recently married. I got into my dream program, full scholarship, teaching position. I was doing research. Life was great. And so I'm driving home and I'm asking myself, could I be stressed about? What could I be stressed about? Mm-hmm. What came to me was, you got to go to New York. It was clear as day. And I just brushed it off. And I was like, you got to go to New York. And when I honored that and, and I took a moment to think about, well, what, that, what does that even mean or translate into? And it was fashion. And it was so hard for me to really embrace that. But it took this physical, really obstacle to make me pay attention to it. And I think a lot of times we don't realize that we have these things that are planted in us, these seeds that are these desires that are planted in us for a greater purpose. And we ignore them for whatever reason. We have to honor our parents or society or our community or whatever. And we ignore those seeds and it manifests into disease. It could be a mental, physical, or physical disease. And so it, for me, it manifested into chest pain for me to stop and pay attention. And so I think that was a big part of it too, because I could have went on and gotten my PhD and life would have been great. I literally said, when I accepted the scholarship to the University of Connecticut, I said, oh, that fashion thing that was like in my mind, in the back of my mind, I'll do that when I retire. That's what I said to myself. And a lot of times we do that. Oh, that thing that I would love to do, I'll do that when I retire, (laughs) right? And so what the universe was saying, what God was saying was like, "Uh uh-uh, honey, I have plans for you. And then you're not going to stop until I make you physically stop to pay attention. And that's when it manifested into that physical like diversion. But it took more than that. It took me also having the courage to take the next step, to share that with my husband, you know, where we knew we'd be physically separated for me to move forward with this path, for me to take it to the director of the program and my mentor who believed in me enough to give me this opportunity on a full scholarship to enter into this program, to take it to my traditional Jamaican parents to say, oh yeah, you remember that doctor thing? Yeah, I'm not gonna do that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, that wouldn't work well in the Jewish family either. I can tell you that. (laughs) Right? And then my friends, you know, they're like, all these things, you know, the fear of judgment, the fear of failure. I didn't know what that path had for me. I didn't even know what I was gonna do with it, but I knew I had to start. I knew I had to do it. And so it took courage. It took paying attention and it took honoring that desire that was in me. I thought it would be more stressful to, to um, go into the fashion industry uh, <laughs> than it would be to be a psychologist. Um, you talk about a balancing life and uh, the generation like my daughters are 31, 28 and the whole idea of working 80 to 100 hours a week, they just think that's insane. They watched us do it. And they're always talking about work-life balance. I mean, they know it's not 40 hours is not realistic, but they know somewhere in between what we did and and what needs to be done. So what's your advice to women who say, I need that work-life balance and how do they, how do you balance your own kids and, and manage that? I love this question. And I think it's something that I continuously look for answers and solutions too. Because I think as a creative, what do you love to do? 
create. <laughs> so I'm always creating something. Um, I would say really carve out time for you because I love to use the analogy of a well. So think about a well that's full with water. And I, and I believe that as children, we, our wells are full. And little by little, this water spills out or things we're taking from this well. And then that water level gets lower and lower. And when it gets too low, you start feeling maybe physically ill or maybe anxiety or sadness or frustration and anger. And we're not paying attention because we don't even understand that we're dealing with this well to begin with. And if we aren't paying attention to how much time we're giving to so many things that are not refilling that well, that's not coming back to us, we get burnt out. And so if we are burnt out, we're not doing a service to those around us, our friends, our children, our family, you know, our, our loved ones, our mates. We're not. We're not doing a service to ourselves because we're not showing up with our best work. We're giving a fraction of it because that's all that we have left to give. And so I think it should be a priority, an absolute priority to carve out time for yourself where you can balance the things that fill that well. So maybe you love to run, maybe you love to write poetry, maybe you love to paint, maybe you love to explore new restaurants or spend time with your friends, garden. What are those things that you just enjoy doing? Make a priority for those things because if you spend more time doing that, you're gonna spend less time working because the ideas are gonna to come to you faster. The solutions to problems are gonna to come to you faster. You're gonna do more in less time. And so I challenge you, how do you do more in less time? If you only had four hours, I love the book, The Four Hour Work Week, when Tim Ferriss came out with that. I read that years ago. Yeah, was, really long time ago. Right? I was like, yeah, the five hour work week, I think it was. Yeah. You know, you can work and, you know, work. Taught. We are we're given this narrative that in order to be successful, you have to work 60 to 80 hours. And the harder you work, the more successful you are, the better you are, the happier you are. That, well, that's a false narrative. And if what if we were challenged that you had to accomplish everything in four hours? What if that was your challenge? How would you choose the activities of your day? How do you amplify your creativity? How do you amplify the solutions that you're coming up with? right? And so it's being mindful. It's filling that well. It's because you're going to come up with people you can talk to that'll get you to your goal faster. You're going to attract the right team around you that's going to make you more productive. You're going to come up with the ideas that are going to make you more financially sustainable. You know, so finding that balance should be an absolute priority. I can't say that was a priority when I started. I just had this dream and this desire. And I had my, my young children and I was hustling and working and I burned out. And How I old are your kids now? Huh? How old are your children now? My youngest is 16 now and I have four. And oh, wow. we creative entrepreneurs. So be careful what you ask for. Cause now I, I've had to raise creatives and, um, and I'm helping, I'm helping to guide and empower my own children that want to be creative entrepreneurs. But I feel like this is a phenomenon that's across this generation, right? Um, and, and I think we, as the leaders and visionaries, have to set that example and we have to guide this next generation because they are looking for guidance and they're hungry for this knowledge and information. And we are the first ge generation, I believe, 
that can see both sides. We know we saw our parents sacrifice to give us more. Now we have more, but we're working just as hard as our parents. What that doesn't make any sense. That's not why they sacrificed what they did, why they sacrificed all that they did, right? So how do we correct this imbalance? So our work, our efforts, the seeds that we've planted truly are representative, you know, for what our children want to do, where they now can have balance. So we have to first focus on ourselves, create that balance for ourselves. So we can show our children and their peers how they can do it successfully. So the, the, my recommendation is create that priority, make it a priority, set the intention to do more in less time. How do you get more from less work and effort? It doesn't mean the less work and effort is not as valuable. It's actually more impactful because you had to find ways to do something that would take normally 20 hours in two hours. One of the things you write about uh, since you've been building your companies, you know, both in the fashion and in the media space, uh, one of the things you write about is putting the right team together. And I think everybody kind of struggles uh, with that. And it, it, there's no clear formula to them. But what criterion did you use for selecting employees? And what did you avoid? What kinds of people did you avoid? Ooh, love this. Okay, so I'll be very transparent. I made mistakes in the beginning, um, not with the people who I hired, because I feel that I have a good sense of hiring good people, like good souls, um, and people that want to work hard. But what I didn't do was I didn't hire the right person for the right position that I needed at the right time. And so what I would recommend is see your team building as a formula that you're creating. My little kitty just walked past. Um, see your team building as a formula that you're creating. What are you really, really good at? And what would who what skills would support you to help you be better at what you're doing? What are the things that you're not as efficient in? And who can you bring on to fill that gap in that efficiency? Now, I was an athlete all my life, most of my life, competitive athlete. I still run now, love playing volleyball too. Um, and as an athlete, if you're putting yourself as a position of the coach, how would you hire your team? So you have a championship that you're trying to get to at the end of the season. So if you're putting your team together today to make the championship and not just make it, but win the championship, how would you assemble your team? You balance your team with skill sets, right? And talents for that needed goal for if it's football, if it's volleyball, if it's track and field, you see what you're missing, you see the holes you need to fill. That's how you should be assembling your team when you're creating a business. It's no different if you see it as a sport and a game, right? And so if you want to win that game, you, you find, you assess, okay, this is, I'm writing a book. I could write, but I can't edit. I could write, but I can't illustrate. You know, find the editor, find the illustrator, but you're not going to find a subpar editor or illustrator. You're going to find the best. You're going to try to recruit the best. The other thing is, if you are seeing individuals as human beings and not just skill sets, and you honor them as humans in terms of they want to be admired, they want to be respected, they, they want to provide value, they want to know that you're appreciating that value, and you build that into your infrastructure, people are going to want to work with you and they're going to want to stay because there's so few environments that are providing that. And when they leave, they're going to want to come back 
because they could see the contrast. So create an environment and a culture where you would thrive, where you would love to be in, because then the individuals that you bring in are going to benefit from that. Not necessarily the environment or culture that you may have experienced in your past that wasn't necessarily the best, but if you're creating your fairy tale work environment, then someone else is going to want that same work environment. Someone else is going to want that same experience. And so you create that for your team as well. And they're going to want, they're going to want to um, experience that and stay with you. Um, when starting a business, is it better to solve a problem or go after an opportunity? Uh, and uh, doesn't it matter? Because it seems to me that most um, fashion isn't really solving a problem, but there are opportunities to provide something new and fresh uh, for specific types of buyers. What, what's your thoughts on this problem oper or opportunity? How do you look at this? Yeah, I've never gotten that question before. And uh, I would say one of the things that I discuss a lot now when I, when I advise entrepreneurs and founders is if you can be the water bucket, the water bottle, the water jug in the desert, problem solved, right? It, it doesn't matter how much you're charging. You, you have a thirsty... <laughs> customer that needs water. And so if you're looking at whatever you're creating that as I'm the water bottle in the desert, you bring those two together, you have success. If you're the band-aid to someone's cut, right? Like let's just look at that example. Band-aid the company, they it what just now they're innovating their product, right? Super simple, little little cotton swab that sticks on your hand, the most bland color. And then now they have prints and colors and whatever, because now there's competition. But if you have a cut, you don't care what that Band-Aid looks like. You don't even care how much it is. You need the Band-Aid. And so I feel that even in fashion, it doesn't have to be a functional Band-Aid. It, it could be an emotional Band-Aid. What are you offering that's going, to that's going to offer someone fulfillment? Is it an experience? Is it happiness? Is it success? Is it warmth? Is it, I'm going to help you run faster? What is that need that you're going to bring to that consumer? And so I was just reading about a designer this morning who had shared his new collection in, in um, Macy's. And what he said was, I'm so glad that I created designs that I'm excited to wear. And so what he was bringing was excitement. Do I need another blazer? Maybe not. But what I saw was a really cute fuchsia satin blazer which was fun and exciting. And so when you're thinking about what you're creating and bringing to an audience, if you're able to capture the emotion with the function, Nike, for example, then you've hit gold. So Apple is another example. You've hit gold. How do you create a product that answers a need, but also satisfies an emotion? Because if you're able to connect with someone on a, an emotional level, a level, then you've got them for life. Anyone can come out with another Band-Aid or water bottle. It's up to you to add that emotional layer or start with that emotional layer. But whatever you're doing, you still have to answer a need that someone has. Uh, question from the audience. Any daily practices or non-negotiables for honing into your best, uh, into your uh, best, most productive self? Yes, yes. Okay. Mindfulness is something I speak about in the book. I dedicated a whole chapter on it. I was fortunate enough to take a graduate course recently in mindfulness, and I thought I knew what that term meant. It's so much more than what you see in pop culture. I would say start with your environment and 
understand that everything around you can inspire you and help you tap into that limitless creativity. And so color, texture, sense, what you're looking at. Like I'm looking at this beautiful sunflower quilt that's in front of me. I have dried roses because I love flowers in front of me. I have sunflower, silk sunflowers next to me because even when it's a gray day like today, um, the sunflowers remind me of sunshine and I thrive <laughs> off the sun. And so books, I'm surrounded by books because I love books. Think about your environment and how you can place things in and around it that you love. Remember that well example that I gave before? And so even if you're coming in a little tired or sluggish, you see your favorite color, you see your favorite flower, you know, you have a painting that's, that inspires you, that's around you. I have a record player. Yes, a record player, because I love antiques. I'm very old school like that. And I have a record player with records. My Bob Marley record is on. So if I want to listen to some reggae, which is my happy music, I just put on the record behind me because music is a powerful thing. So some of the daily practices is one, I set up my environment where it's a constant reminder of how I can be mindful to choose something that day that you could treat yourself to. So you can get through that one important task and treat yourself. It, I love dark chocolate. So I have handy, my handy dark chocolate bar and I treat myself to a couple squares of chocolate. Maybe it's matcha, go out for a matcha run and get your hot or iced matcha. Think of something small that you can reward yourself for each day. Another thing I like to do at the end of the day is, um, or you could do this at the end of the day, before the next day, or in the beginning of the day. When you wake up, take a moment, just take a moment to just be grateful. And, um, okay, go ahead. And it could just be with, I'm grateful for my toes. I'm grateful for my knees. You know, it doesn't have to be this big thing. Just what are those things you can be grateful for? And then when you're done with that gratitude, the moment of gratitude, get excited and say, ooh, what? I like to use this word. Ooh, what miracle is going to happen today? Or what surprise am I going to get today, right? And most people love surprises. I love surprises. Ooh, what surprise am I going to get today? I kid you not, whenever I do that, at the end of the day, there's something, when I assess my day, there's something really amazing that happened that day. So set your attention in the beginning of the day, but start with gratitude and then get excited for what's coming. So you set that intention for something good that's going to come. And when you accomplish something, recognize that. Going back to honoring yourself, reward yourself, fill that well. And then as a constant, take a moment, if you haven't already, create an environment that brings a smile to your face. And it could be, like I said, color, texture, scent, all of the above, visuals, all of the above. Um, you write about taking risks. How do you evaluate risks before you take one? I don't know if I actually evaluate them. <laughs> you just jump in. The fear the better. I don't <laughs> I, you know, I, I love, and again, this might be the athlete in me. When I, I do talk about find your inner athlete, imagine being the underdog and winning the championship, right? Like that journey upward is so fun. And I feel that I gravitate towards the path least taken. I, I, I love to create something out of nothing, but I do it with the purpose of inspiring someone that they could do it too. Because it's so easy for us to, to give up and we forget how creative we are. And I think that the riskier, the better, because the riskier 
the 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 chance, the opportunity, the bigger the reward, right? Um, I am not risky enough to go skiing without lessons. Okay, <laughs> I'm. I, I skydiving is not on your list. <laughs> skydiving is not at the top of my list. My son went skydiving; he loved it. So I did too. I liked it. <laughs> not that I wouldn't, but I take lessons. I don't know. I'll ease myself in. But I, I feel that it's also just being true to who you are. It's okay to be uncomfortable. And are you are you not doing it because you're afraid of failing? You know, um, that's a lot of times. Are you not doing it because you are coming from a place of lack? But if you come from a place of love, like self-love, then you'll do it. Because I, of I, mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, but I got a question for you along these lines. Yeah. Did you teach yourself how to become resilient? I mean, you, you mentioned in entrepreneurship, it's a souped up roller coaster, and I've done a lot of ventures myself. So I agree with that. How did you teach yourself to become resilient? I will have to thank my parents for being that example. Um, it's not easy immigrating with, at the time, four young children to a new country and having to start over where your education isn't recognized at the same level, where your past experiences aren't recognized. And, you're, and so here you are coming as an adult with children that you know any of us that have raised children here in this country without those obstacles, we know how challenging it is, let alone with those obstacles. And being the first generation to go to college here and having to you know, sort of figure it out myself um, being raised with within a very different culture from the American culture and still being having to show up and figure out and fit in um, in a way where I was accepted when I would go to school every day and being able to juggle and balance those things. You know, my teenage years was very different than my classmates, but I didn't complain. You know, I had added responsibilities that are very typical within a Jamaican or Caribbean home that my friends didn't have, in addition to the expectation of getting A's, in addition to the, you know, the desire to want to be a competitive athlete at the scholarship level. And so I was always juggling a lot from a very young age and, and looking to excel in all that I did. But my parents really served in an, as an example where you can work hard and still have a smile on your face, still enjoy the weekend, still enjoy time with family. And this is just, you just do, you just do. You don't question, you don't complain. You just do, and you provide a safe environment for those that you love. So I feel that that set the foundation and where I was able to understand how to juggle and balance a lot. And and what I needed to learn how to do was to recognize moments where that could lead to burnout and to create those buffers and to understand how to refill the well faster than the well is going down. But I feel that my parents and family really laid that foundation for me. I've got two more quick questions as we're running out of time here. First question is, a lot of entrepreneurs are good at technology or good at design or whatever, but you have to be good at sales. How did you develop your sales skills? Or if you're not, don't have any sales background, what do you recommend to entrepreneurs who need to not only sell their product, but they've got to sell investors, they've got to sell strategic partners, they've got to sell people to join them. What do you recommend? I'm so happy you asked this question uh, because I, if I think about sales in the traditional sense, and let's just think, remember, the, remember the days when the salesman would show up with the vacuum at the front door and the, and, yeah. the and you 
everyone's like cringing, like, oh no, the person's knocking on the door. Like that is the most in your face sales, right? Or I had a paper route, so I had to sell customers into joining my route. So I'd have more customers. I feel that if you see yourself as adding value of, or providing a service that's going to add value or helping someone. So think about it. Does a doctor have to sell themselves? No. If you believe in what you're doing is benefiting someone's life, you're just telling a story. You're literally going out and saying, oh my gosh, this is going to help you, you know? And so it's not sales. I, I was a cheerleader in college. So I, I, I really love cheering people and things on that I believe in. And if I find something that I love, like a book or a product, and I believe it's going to change someone's life, oh my gosh, I am out there selling. And it's not even selling. I'm literally adding something of value to someone's life. And so going back to the point of being the water bottle in, in the desert, if you are truly answering someone's needs, it's not a sale. Also, I would say is relationships looking at that thing, seeing the person as a person and not as a customer, you know, and then individuals realize when you're coming to them with the intention of good or coming to them here, take this, right. You know, think of a mom feeding a baby and, and she's like gently putting the food in their mouth. She knows it's going to help them grow, blah, blah, versus eat this, eat this broccoli, (laughs) you know, and forcing it to someone. People know that. So if you even just take a moment to get to know the person, to appreciate them, who they are as a person. And if it turns into a sale, great. But what you walk away with is something even more valuable is a friendship possibly, right? Or an experience or a memory. So seeing the individual as more than just a customer, but then also bringing something that's going to impact them in a positive way, then it's not selling. I feel that artists and creatives have a harder time with this because what they're producing is really a part of themselves. And so if I'm trying to convince you, Mark, here, buy my arm, that's really hard to do because we truly see it as part of who we are. And we are giving it to the world as something that we feel is going to add value and impact. And so I think what we have to do as artists is, again, put ourselves in that position that whatever we're putting out there, someone is looking for. And so if we, we're actually doing a disservice if we're not sharing that to the world. And it's just being in the place of where that person is that's looking for that. So here's my last question. And by the way, I want you to email me uh, your podcast so I can send a link out to them and so forth. So everybody can uh, see that. Um, What books do you read that you would recommend to entrepreneurs? What podcasts, what magazines, what, what are you reading? And you're like me, an avid reader, hence why I started this podcast. So give us some recommendations. Okay, I'm going to warn you guys, I love to read, so I'm reading at least a book a week. <laughs> As I am here. <laughs> I will, um, I'll start with the last book I just read, which was, uh, I believe, Wallace E. Waddles, who read The Science of Being Great, Well, and Rich. And this was written over 100 years ago, but the principles, he brings in a lot of philosophers and scientists as well. Um, the principles that he's mentioned that he mentions in the book is just phenomenal and you can apply to anywhere in your life. The book I read just before that, The Cafe at the Edge of the World by um, John Strzelecki. And I had the pleasure of interviewing him. Incredible. And again, for those of you that tend to read, you know, Eckhart Tolle and books along those lines, The Alchemist, which is one of my favorite books, The Power Now. These aren't 
principles that you're going to hear for the first time, but how it's presented is so powerful. But some of my favorites, The Alchemist, which I believe any entrepreneur should read because I feel the journey of entrepreneurship is truly a journey of growth and self-discovery. And the more you're able to uncover those superpowers or the synchronicities or all those things that can work in your benefit, the more successful you're going to be as an entrepreneur. And so when you really embrace that this is a journey of how I am actually leveling up as an individual, then that's going to impact your business. And so I would say The Alchemist, um, Blue Ocean, which is great, The Tipping Point, which is great. Um, and these are things that will help you as your business grows and strategies that you can apply so you can see the opportunities before they're even there. You know, as an entrepreneur, if you could place yourself in a blue ocean, so I am a fashion designer in Web3, in the metaverse, the metaverse in Web3 is a blue ocean. There's very traditional fashion, very few traditional fashion designers in this space. So I become, again, a Band-Aid to a lot of people, the water bottle in the desert. So finding those blue ocean opportunities, I think, is, is key. Alchemist, Cafe at the Edge of the World, the Blue Ocean, Tipping Point are some great ones. Um, science of being great, well, rich, or great. And absolutely love Napoleon Hill's um, Think and Grow Rich. There's so many. <laughs> I do have a book podcast, a book club podcast, um, Tuesday's Book Club. So a lot of my recommendations are there. Um, Tuesday's Book Club. You can check that out. Nova, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to spend with us. And God, I love your energy. I could just unplug the building and plug you in. Got more energy than I can imagine and, and doing so many things and doing them well. So uh, I will also share your podcast. We'll send that out to folks uh, so they know about that. Have a great weekend, everybody. Please be safe. We'll look forward to seeing you next Friday. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you, Mark. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.